Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the beauty of this day and the beauty of our life, and we pray that you would keep us all healthy and relatively sane and hopeful, and that we would learn something new from our study of the book of Acts today, not just new information to absorb with the mind, but a new word of grace to sink into the heart. And as that grace sinks into the heart, give us grace to express that truth in our life this week. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen here. And today we get to talk about the Council of Jerusalem. This is just a really fun day. <laughs> and we're going to start with verses 1 through 21. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and with the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met together to consider the matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to death by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to teach really only the essentials 
but there's so much to get through here and it's so exciting. I'm going to try and limit myself to a few minutes and then we'll have some conversation. First thing to note is that this whole council of Jerusalem, this is the first ecumenical council of the church. And so throughout history, the church has gotten together whenever there is disagreement on how to handle things and the bishops and priests and apostles all kind of make decisions. And that's the way things work moving forward. So the most famous council is the Council of Nicaea, where we settled on the Nicene Creed, which is now our standard for orthodoxy. But, you know, in February, the Diocese of Texas will host diocesan council. Certainly it's not as exciting as the Council of Jerusalem, but whenever one is ordained a priest, you make a vow to take your place in the councils of the church. And it really all started with this Council of Jerusalem, where the main issue that needed to be decided was do Gentile believers, males in particular, need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to participate in the covenant people of God or the way? And clearly some people are teaching unless they're circumcised and keep the law, they cannot be saved. And in verse 2, and in verse 6, we're told that there is a lot of debate about this. And so the church does not agree. And from the very beginning, there has been debate and division within the church. We have not all seen things in similar ways. And so we come together and we have debates and we have conflict. And we trust that God in the midst of that conflict and debate will bring out a wise way forward. And because the mission to the Gentiles was so successful, that success created this problem. What is required of them? Do they need to be circumcised or not? And so whenever they come together, we'll notice in verse five, some believers who belong to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised. That's right. Some Pharisees actually became Christians. And so in the gospel of Luke, we remember that the Pharisees were the sect that always seemed to be opposing Jesus and his work. But this gospel has been believed not just by Gentiles, but also by Pharisees. And so you have Pharisee Christians, um, but they are adamant that the Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses. Now, this reminds me of whenever I was in seminary um, and I showed up to Washington, D.C., and at the time, the only shoes I wore were boots. You know, that's what people in Texas wore. And boots weren't very popular at Virginia Theological Seminary. And I, you know, people would, would comment on my boots. And I, I once heard someone say under their breath, you can take John Newton out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of John Newton. And I think that was a reference to the boots I was wearing. But I think something similar is happening with the Pharisees, right? You can take the Pharisees out of the synagogue, but you can't take the synagogue out of the Pharisees, right? They are the law keepers the rule keepers, and they don't like this idea of the Gentiles coming in and just not having to keep the law of Moses that is so important for them. And so this is a big, big debate. And as people are going back and forth, you know, hopefully being civil, but maybe things get heated, in verse six, Peter stood up. And this is significant because when Peter stands up, everyone has to listen, and a decision is about to be made. And Peter retells, right, the success of the Gentile mission. And to be clear, at this point, no one's debating whether or not Gentiles are welcome. The debate is whether or not they have to be circumcised and keep the law. 
And Peter stands up and basically recounts, God is at work in the Gentiles. They've received the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't want to hinder God's work here. And really in verse 10, he basically says, if we make them keep the law, we're putting God to the test. And he calls the law a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. Now, whether or not this is a fair understanding of the law, that might be a different conversation. But Peter basically says this law was a heavy yoke that not even we could keep. So why are we going to put it on them? And we recall Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew, come to me, all ye who are tired and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here, the idea of a heavy yoke versus a light yoke is reiterated. And P Peter basically says, we're not here to put a heavy yoke on them. They're going to be saved by the grace of God. They are welcome fully as is. And so let's kind of just figure out what it means to welcome them. And so what Peter basically says is, let's just bring them all in, you know. But then everyone's silent because Peter has spoken and Peter's the head honcho. But then you have James stand up. Now, James is the bishop of Jerusalem and he is the Lord's brother. And so whenever he says, my brothers, listen to me, Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles. Simeon is just another Greek spelling for Simon, as in Simon Peter. So here he's referring to Peter. And Peter has basically said, you know, let's just let them all in and not worry about it. And what James does is basically agree with Peter, but to kind of appease the Pharisees and to make sure that it's not uh, just a free-for-all, he does suggest a few codes of conduct, for lack of a better word. And in order to reestablish God's welcome of the Gentiles, in verse 16, he quotes the prophet Amos. So that's from Amos chapter 9. And so what James does is basically say, again, God's plan has always been to include the Gentiles. But then he says, I have reached the decision that for the most part, Peter is right and that we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles turning to God, but we should give them a few things to do, namely that they need to abstain from things polluted by idols, that they need to not engage in fornication and to avoid what is strangled and from blood. And so we can get into what all that means, but long story short, that is for the most part what the law of Moses would have prescribed from uh, an alien living in their land uh, or for a Gentile living in Israelite territory under King David. And so if you were a pagan living in the nation of Israel, um, what the Bible calls the aliens in the land, um, you would not have to keep the law of Moses, but you would have to do this. And so essentially, James's argument is that they can keep the law of Moses, that if they just do these things, it is still in accordance with what God told Israel to let the non-Israelites know living in their land under Israelite rule. And so in a sense, James's argument is that circumcision was never intended for non-Jews in the first place, that it was always a sign of the covenant, but that now, essentially, that sign is no longer as relevant. 
And so even though James and Peter land in the same place, essentially of, you know, the Gentiles don't need to keep the law. That's where they land. Um, there are some differences even between Peter and James of how they see this and what they say at this first council. Now, one other note, and then uh, I'm going to see where this interests you. Um, notice in verse 19, therefore I have reached the decision. Therefore I have reached the decision. So this is James, the Lord's brother, basically saying, this is the way we're going to move forward. James is uh, the first bishop of Jerusalem. And even though in the Episcopal church, we elect our bishops and parishes call their rectors, right? So in a sense, there are some ways that the Episcopal church mirrors the practices of American democracy and the structure of the Episcopal church came into being about the time of the American revolution. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's also good to be reminded, um, and, and this can be a jarring thing to hear that uh, the church is not a democracy, right? That whenever bishops make decisions, they make decisions for all of us. And even though we elect our bishops, um, whenever a bishop opens his or her mouth and says, I have reached the decision, at least in our polity, that is a final decision. And that's how the Episcopal Church works. And a lot of that is based on the tradition of apostolic succession, which means that uh, that's why there's the highest standard for both priests and bishops in the church, because we're given a lot of uh, authority to steward. And if we don't steward that authority well, we can do a lot of damage. And so whenever I hear James say, I have reached the decision, it makes me think of Andy Doyle saying something where, well, that's that, decision's been made. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and, and stop that there. I'm so curious to hear what you think about this passage um, both about the conflict within the church between what to do with these Gentiles and how do we welcome them with the law of Moses and how we see it and just anything else that this, uh, this passage evokes for you. I'm, I'm going to stop talking now and I'm eager to hear your thoughts. Uh, back in um, verse 10, he says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither or neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? What is he referring to there? So it's a little, it's a little controversial, I think. Um, not really that controversial, but he's referring to the, the whole law of Moses. He's oh. referring to not so much the Ten Commandments, but by the time kind of Pharisaic Christianity came to full expression in Jesus's time, there were about 613 rules and regula regulations kind of taken directly or inferred from the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. Everything from how to cook your food on the Sabbath to how to treat your neighbor. I mean, it was a, a very strict list of how to live, how to eat, who to associate with, uh, how to make yourself clean, what to do before making an offering at the temple. And uh, what Peter's basically saying is, you know, it got out of hand. It was just too much for us. And none of us did it very well. And what was meant to be a gift ended up being oppressive. Uh, and 
I can't comment on that because I've never tried to keep the law of Moses. Uh, some scholars would see it differently and some would see it exactly as Peter does. Yeah, Gail. I'm a little confused about when Peter is speaking and I think of him as the first bishop, correct? And then we already have James as a bishop. The historical part, timeline is, escapes me. And in, in that uh, verse 19, therefore I reached the decision. How do we know it's James? Is there something that I s skipped over? Because up earlier in, in chapter 15, Peter says, you know, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I, I, Peter, and down here, therefore, I have reached the decision. And I was thinking that was Peter and not James. Well, so, and so James starts speaking in verse 13. Okay, see, I probably just lost over so that. After they finished speaking. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. so James, that's part of James's speech, but to kind of answer your question about uh, the succession of bishops in the early church. Um, by tradition, Peter was the first bishop of Rome, mm -hmm. which would become the idea of the Pope. The Pope is the bishop of Rome. And so um, a big, big verse for Catholics is, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Now, I think it's a misunderstanding of the verse, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and so Peter was the first bishop of Rome. James was the first bishop of Jerusalem. Okay. And this council takes place in Jerusalem, which, you know, they probably didn't have this well-developed system that we have now, you know, whenever this took place in the early 30s AD. Um, yeah. But a bishop has authority for his or her region, see, diocese, things like that. So this would have been James's call because that's where the council took place. Okay. Was there any sort of um, decision or vote or it was just they were moved by the Holy Spirit? I mean, there's a lot of that in this whole chapter or the whole book of Acts. It seems like <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit came upon them was one of them. It's almost like uh, the Holy Spirit is walking with the disciples and the people at different points. So, so it's um so there seems to be a, a tension here, a, a healthy tension of a lot of debate and discussion allowed, mm -hmm. coupled by whenever James speak, the word is final. So, it is worth noting that Peter and James listen. They listen really well to the Pharisees, to Barnabas and Saul, that they allow room for the back and forth debate. But the understanding in the day was that authority was not centered in the collective will of the body manifested through a vote, but through the decision of the apostles. And if you notice, you know, Jesus spoke a lot about authority. He says, you will not, you know, lord your authority over others as the Gentiles do, uh, or he will, you know, wash his disciples' feet and say, I've done this as an example. This is what it means to have authority. And the reason he spoke so much about how we handle our authority is because he was giving his apostles authority in his absence. And the early church really took that seriously. And so it is just understood that James has authority in the church and that whenever he makes a decision that those who see it otherwise will trust the decision and then kind of 
for lack of a better word, get on board. Yeah. Question along those lines. So is this like you said, it's like Andy Doyle saying, okay, this is what I'm saying. Does that mean that um, James could say this, this is now going to become the, his interpretation of the law and the practice in, in Jerusalem, but Peter could go back to Rome and not, he could, he could tweak it his own way. Do, when we talk about this kind of authority, is their authority different? I mean, do they have different views of being one in Christ? Because that's what to me is, comes up. So it's, it's a really good question, Mary. And I, I think that what I don't want to do is to read our current kind of ecclesiology and polity and set up into the early church when it wasn't fully there. And so the idea that Peter says, okay, this is fine for Jerusalem, but you know, in Rome, we're going to be a little bit more liberal here. We're not even going to write the letter. I don't think that's how Peter would have thought about that. Um, I think at this point in the church's life, they were still small enough to where they could have a council and that council would spread throughout the whole church. But it wasn't, it wasn't before long. I mean, before that was unsustainable. And so if you read Paul's letters, so much of Paul's letters are writing against these other preachers who come in preaching things that are not what he considers to be mainstream as decided by the church, whether in terms of practices or doctrine. And so even though in my nostalgic idealistic world, everyone left this council thinking, okay, we trust the Holy Spirit. James has spoken for the church. The truth is we know from history, that's not actually how it happened that, you know, that if there were, 20 Pharisaic Christians there, 15 of them said, okay, I don't like it, but I can get on board. And but about five of them said, you know what? I think we're just going to kind of do our own Christian community where we keep the law of Moses. And those sorts of communities grew and thrived outside of what we know in the New Testament and lasted well into the fourth century. And so the church, as much as we like to, to think of it as this unified, cohesive, everyone's on the same page thing, that there have been schisms and break-offs from the very beginning, and there's no doubt some fallout from this council that, that people may have left. I think that's realistic. Barbara? Um, there are a couple of lines that, if you could clarify or explain to me, um, I think it's um, line, I'm sorry, um, well, actually there's one, um, and I think it was, an, it was also referenced earlier, I just can't find it, and it's, um, oh, um, line 17, uh-huh. Uh, it, it, the second part of it says, the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. What does that mean? Um, I just don't understand. I don't understand it. What is that saying? Or can you say it in different words? Yeah. So this is quoting from Amos chapter nine. Um, so this is what Amos says. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it and I will set it up 
so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. So the prophecy here that Amos is offering, and Amos offered this at a time when the, the, the nation of Israel that existed under, you know, David and Solomon had crumbled, right? So the dream of the, the you know, of the, of the holy nation under David with a, an Israelite ruler, that had crumbled and everyone's in despair. And the prophecy is, fear not, says the Lord, uh, I will come to you and I will rebuild the dwelling of David. I will rebuild the people of Israel, but I won't rebuild it exclusively for them. I will rebuild it so that it serves not just my chosen people of Israel, but all the peoples of the world, including the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, over whom my name has been called. So what that essentially means, if I'm going to put that in like modern, easy to understand languages, God says to the people of Israel, when I rebuild my kingdom, it's not there to serve um, a chosen few, but all the peoples of the earth whom I deeply love. And, you know, you and I uh, assume that God loves all people. This was not common knowledge to all Jews when this prophecy was uttered. And God is reminding the people that whenever I rebuild the people of Israel, it's not for them alone, but for all the world. And Gentile basically means all the world. All the world. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, as, as far as, um, am I? Uh, You're on. As far as the uh, following the law, there's a wonderful book that I recommend called The Year of Living Biblically. Uh-huh. It's a humorous book, but but he actually he takes his the book very seriously. And he presumed to go a year following all the laws he found in the Bible. And since he was of nominal Jewish heritage. He decided to do the Old Testament for nine months and the New Testament for three months. And uh, but it's a nice survey of the whole thing. And he, you know, he goes and visits the snake handlers in Tennessee and and uh, the guy who sells doves for the for the Hasidics in New York City. And and it's just it's very interesting. Yeah, Jackie told me last week that. He was sitting by someone at a bus stop and he was clearly a sinner and asked to throw a pebble at him so he could fulfill the law of stoning right, right. The, the sinful people. So, yeah. So let me ask you, does this, what do you think of this? Of um, This was the church's first big issue, right? I mean, this is, we don't agree. We don't see things the same way. We don't know what God is doing, and we need to make a decision of how to move forward. Um, does that feel encouraging to you to hear about this council and how it went down? Uh, do you find it inspiring, confusing, hopeful, depressed? Yeah, Mary? Um, a little of all of that. One of the things that hit me is it's like the hopeful is, okay, this is this is a, a first or an early uh, coming together of people and the attempt is to welcome and open this gift to more people. So that's welcoming. 
I wonder what may, what I started to wonder is I feel like we now, and perhaps it's because we make it easy, can and often a lot of us say it's not about me judging. God will take care of that. And if they were there, to me, this all falls under that kind of stuff too. Like, why are we worried about it other than people that are wholeheartedly wanting to worry about making sure you, John, are saved because you have to do the right things that I'm doing. And, and to me, it's the debate about inclusivity and exclusivity. And I think that that's where the hope is. I think it's, it's leading to trying to find ways to honor tradition and, and remember it, but also open up for the reality of their day and more people. It's mm. great. It reminds me of, uh, there's a difference, I think, between tradition and convention. Someone once said that tradition is the living faith of the dead, and that convention is the dead faith of the living, and that it's convention and not tradition that gives religion a bad name. And so the question is, is what is it that we're doing? Is it tradition? And tradition always has to be honored, nourished sustained, insisted upon, right? That's what tradition is. Or is it convention? Is it just kind of like a dead legalistic rule we hang over others and don't welcome them if they don't play ball, right? So, so that's where you have to have to- Inner convention, go ahead. But that's where you have to understand the why. I mean, I joke with one of my organizations, like there's all these rules and it's like, believe me, we don't sit back there just making up rules. I mean, they, they come from somewhere. And to me, that's the way you honor tradition and or measure it against convention. What is it you're doing and why? And is that doing what it's supposed to be doing? Hmm. So you have to be intentional and continue to remember. So just even like rituals and symbols, they're there, they continue, but not everybody knows why. And it doesn't hurt necessarily to go through the motions of a ritual or, or um, know that this is a symbol, but not understand all the way why. But the more you do, I think the more enriched you are. Yeah, thank you. Our priest in Virginia overheard um, the head of the altar guild explaining to a new member who said, why do we have two candles on the altar? And, and she said, oh, well, one is the symbol for this and one is the symbol for that. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have two candles on the altar because it would look stupid to just have one. <laughs> always, I've always remembered that, um, not to make fun of, of tradition and ritual, but that sometimes we can get carried away with, uh, with this. Well, it's, you know, and, and by the way, I, I think that's good. And I think it's important, you know, to ask why do we do things and, and also to say there's nothing wrong with convention. There's only something wrong with loving convention more than people, right? So there's a lot that we do in the Episcopal Church that is convention. It is conventional to call our leadership team a vestry. It is conventional, you know, the, the very fact that we have a, a cassock, that's a convention. So the, the black cassock that we wear that, that original garment was, um, it was a riding garment when, you know, to keep priests warm as they rode on horses from parish to parish. That's where the cassock came from. We call our leadership team the vestry because they used to meet in the vesting room. Um, and so there's, 
um, the, the clergy collar is a gentleman's collar, I think, from uh, 150 years ago, slightly modified. And so uh, a lot that we do is convention, and that's okay. It's okay to do conventional things as long as we don't love the convention more than the tradition. But then there are things that we do that, that are tr tradition. You know, Eucharist is not a convention. Our Eucharistic prayer isn't a convention, right? It's the living faith of the dead that we handle very, very seriously. And so kind of parsing those things out can be really, really important. And it's not that one's good and the other's bad. It's just that one has to be held a lot more lightly than the other. So I want to ask another question. So James gave these Gentiles three things. Uh, and it's a funny list, okay? So he basically says, you can be part of the church. Don't worry about the law. Don't worry about circumcision. But we're going to give you three things to do. Number one is stay away from anything polluted by idols. Number two, abstain from fornication. Number three, abstain from anything that's strangled or with blood. And by the, by the way, I think that's a reference to uh, how meat is killed and prepared to make sure it's done ceremony, you know, in a way that's um, appropriate. The modern equivalent of that, I mean, that's an ethical thing that we're aware of today. People increasingly care if they eat meat. A lot of people don't eat meat on um, um, uh, ethical grounds, but if they do, a lot of people are a lot more concerned about um, how, where the meat came from and how the animal was treated. And so that's a, a really good thing. But, you know, you see that in the early church. Uh, but the three things they were given was, you know, no fornication, um, no meat that's been strangled and um, nothing polluted by idols. If you had, you know, what would be on your list? This is, do you, do you think this is a funny list? Do you think it's a good list? Like if you had three things to tell the Gentiles, would those be your three things? Or would you not give them any requirements at all? Always. Say something like, I don't know, watch and listen and learn. Um, because they'd be coming in new. And, you know, when people come into organizations and they're brand new and they've got their own ideas about how things should be done and they try to, you know, go barreling into it. And I'm I know I'm bringing up a particular lens here, but um, when they come in with preconceived ideas and don't listen and learn just, you know, what already exists and how things are done um, before recommending changes. Um, yeah. So I don't know that I would make it so prescribed um, as is here. Yeah, that's, that's a great, great point. Yeah, Mary. If I was doing it today, I like the baptismal covenant. Mm -hmm. And yes. that doesn't get into eating meat. It doesn't get into fornication other than as uh, being uh, honoring the dignity of humans. And, and I think that if, to me, those pieces, that part of the covenant is how to live, is how to be a Christian today. So that's where I would go if I was doing this today. Yeah. That's good. You know, so one way to think about this, we tend to hear these as these are like moral things that you need to do to please God. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. 
But I, I, I hear these as James basically having a good pastoral intuition of saying that if you abstain from these things, then this delicate homeostasis of this early movement can be maintained, that you're not going to offend people too much. So for instance, you know, like, let's just say a um, hundred people from a skateboarding rink uh, from skateboarding subculture, you know, who don't believe in Jesus all have a conversion at once and want to join St. Michael's at the same time and come to one of our services, you know, doubling the size of the congregation, but this whole new subculture. Well, I, I would probably have to sit them down and say, okay, so here's the deal. You're fully welcome. We love you. Like, but, um, you need to take your hat off and your AirPods out during church and you need to leave your skateboard at the door um, and um, you need to, I, I don't know, I, I could think of a third thing. And it's not that these things are morally wrong um, so much as if, if 100 people come to our 11 o'clock service, you know, carrying their skateboard up to communion with their AirPods in, I'm going to hear about it from the other members of the congregation. So as a pastor, I'm saying, you're fully welcome. You just can't do these things. Otherwise, we're going to have a problem here with our new community. And so, you know, one way we can read what James is doing is just having a good pastoral intuition of saying, this is why people are suspicious of you Gentiles. And so you need to tone these things down. Otherwise, you know, uh, the delicate unity we enjoy as a church could fall apart pretty quickly. So that's one way of reading it. It seems to me that it was important I can really get on board with the no idol worship or things sacrificed to idols because I think that was a huge cultural conflict between the way the new Christians and the prevailing culture. I'm not as on board with uh, anything strangled and with blood because I don't understand why that was equally important, but you know, there also seem to be uh, temple prostitutes, and and that goes along with idols, I guess, and fornication. So I, I get the first two. I'm not so sure about the third one, but um, it seems to me that one reason we have so many different sex of Christianity today is this kind of disagreement over what we do have to do to be uh, in God's favor or to be good Christians, and we don't agree on that, and I, I think the rules need to be as simple and brief as possible. Like um, Barbara said, listen and learn, you know, be open-minded, don't be judgmental, don't feel like your way is the only way. I don't know how to phrase that better, but that, uh, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Well, okay, um, okay, go ahead, Mary. Um, I was just going to say, I, I, I really see that now that you've explained the good pastoral kind of instincts, because the three things, the three simple things are things that are doable, that people can come and they can do it. And it also helps them in that walk in, in along with Barbara's watch and observe. It helps them fit in. 
So if they come in, it's a good pastor, it helps them be able to come in without rejection from the others. And I don't mean the, the top clergy, but the other believers. And I do think that's a nice instinct, like your no skateboards and AirPods. It would be weird for us to watch that happen around us. Um, <laughs> it would disrupt our community. Yeah, and I think that, that and that's where, so I can see that and it goes for it. I like it. They, um, well, since you began the introduction, I've been thinking about what would it mean to have a council of the Christians? I mean, we'd have to get the L.A. Coliseum to hold one person <laughs> from each sect, you know, and probably couldn't get them all in there. So, I, I, you know, if you want to have such council, I'll be on the committee because I, I think that'd be great if we, if we could do that. But, I mean, we talk about our church. Our church is a little tiny little sliver. Yeah. We're the best, but of course we are. Yeah. You know, and we and we know what's what's decent and in order because we don't have skateboards. And <laughs> <laughs> well, and so so one one thing I just want to make make sure that we can make a distinction between with what's happening here, with and it's very subtle, but they're not the same thing. So the list. I don't see the list as this is what you need to do to be saved, right? Luke puts this in the words of Peter very, very clearly. He says that um, in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so in my metaphorical skateboarding example, um, the skateboarders are still saved if they disobey my pastoral requests and bring their AirPods in and their skateboard. Um, and so on the one hand, like, I don't think there's anything this passage says that we have to do to be saved. However, I think the issue then becomes what restrictions do we put on ourselves as Christians, given our cultural, theological, political difference in order to make sure that that difference doesn't cause dissension. Anyway, Gail, I think you were going to say something. Yeah, I, I, yeah, a couple of things. What Jackie was saying earlier about, you know, what to, to tell people made me think of the colic for this week from Sunday to read, learn, mark, um, inwardly digest. I think that's one of the things you just don't show up on Sunday. You need to take the time to have the Bible study and read that book of common prayer. But the other thing, John, it, where they're to abstain from what's been strangled and from blood, is that contrary to what Jesus said? It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, but what comes out? You're very, you're very, very um, astute. And yes, uh, it's, um, I mean, there's some tension here. Absolutely. Um, um, nothing, J Jesus said literally nothing that enters a person can make him or her unclean, but it's what comes out of the heart that makes someone unclean. Mm -hmm. And I'll even up the ante here. What is, uh, what's the first one? Nothing polluted by idols. Well, in both his letter to the Romans and in his correspondence with the Corinthians, um, Paul addresses directly the issue of meat offered to idols, and he lands in a different place. He, he basically says that, um, we shouldn't, well, actually he lands, actually, I take it back. He lands in a pretty similar place, but not the same. 
he basically says we shouldn't cause we, we shouldn't eat meat offered to idols if it's going to cause a brother to stumble. But he basically says there's nothing inherently wrong with it because there is no God other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And so you are going to have some differences within Scripture itself, which um, I think is kind of beautiful, you know? And, and I think it's really important to name, though, that what James is doing here is writing a letter appropriate for this community at the time that what we don't have here is a new list of rules that is appropriate for all ages and all times. Um, and so, uh, although I don't recommend, uh, um, fornication or eating meat offered to idols, um, or any of these things, you'll notice are not a big focus of my sermons. Uh, and I'm not worried about what food you eat right? Because it's kind of a different day and, and the pastoral issues that I deal with are different. I think I see Kay and Diane. Is that right? Okay, so yes. Kay and then we'll go to Diane. Um, I, you probably may not be ready to go here yet, but I think we all see this very common today. We've got the evangelicals who say, okay, you're a real Christian if... Um, you know, you condemn this, that, and the other, and mainlines saying, well, you're a real Christian if you behave this way and that way toward certain groups. But I, I just think this is so common. You, you know, it's, it's certainly not unique. Yeah, I, 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 I hear that. And, you know, one of the things I think that I really value about um, the Episcopal Church is you know, we were literally born um, at a time when Catholics and Protestants were bitterly divided. And so someone who is very brilliant said, here's a book of common prayer. You will be bound not by common perspective, not by common ideology, not by common political preference. You will be bound by common prayer. And whenever Episcopalians are at that, their best, they remember that. And our common prayer and liturgy can hold together a very diverse group of perspectives. Um, Diane? Well, I was going to say a couple things. One, it was always my understanding that a lot of the dietary rules actually had with to do with health at the time. Mm -hmm. And that if you avoided certain foods or certain way that foods might be prepared, it was simply because it was healthier for you. And then the other uh, thing that comes to mind is you know you're talking about what rules would you have and it seems like if you just put put God first above all else then that kind of takes care of everything you know Diane there's a great man who has once asked what is the greatest commandment uh, and he said there is only one commandment hero Israel the Lord your God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength in your neighbor as mm -hmm. yourself if you do this you will fulfill all the law and the prophets and that's really, you know, as much as I love James, the Lord's brother, the Bishop of Jerusalem, um, the word of Jesus, you know, will always trump um, James. And so I think that that's a really good point. Okay, let me read just a few verses from, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but there's a little bit here I, I don't want us to miss, okay? So um, in verse 22, right, they send the letter through Judas and Barnabas. And this is what it says. 
Um, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin, I love that, the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Um, since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. And this is the, the message. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So just a, a few quick notes. One is, this letter is addressed to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Notice how the order is limited to these three geographical regions. doesn't mean the same teaching might not expand outside of it, but there is this is a unique pastoral letter sent to very specific churches and sent to them because other people are coming in telling them the opposite. And so again, these three things is not like an edict for all time, but a word spoken to specific people in specific areas at a specific time. Verse 25, we have decided unanimously. I think that's hilarious given that James unilaterally made this decision a few verses earlier. But it does speak, I think, to how the church saw it. I'm kind of joking. They probably did see themselves as deciding unanimously because the Holy Spirit was at work in their midst. And so even though there was this agreement when James spoke, Luke's perspective is the whole church was together. And then this is my favorite verse in all of Scripture, verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I think this is the ultimate statement of humility, that, you know, what they don't say is God has spoken to us and we are certain, and so woe unto thee if ye heed not the word of the Lord. What they say is, I think this seems good. It seems good to the Holy Spirit. It seems good for us. Let's go with this. And I think this is something that we as Christians need to learn how to say. We're pretty sure this is what the Spirit says. We, we think it seems good enough for the Spirit and seems good enough for us. And so let's try this out. And I just think that has a certain tone to it that it has authority without being authoritarian. And I've always just loved that verse. And so whenever they hear the news, they obviously rejoice because now they know that they don't have to learn the 616 laws of Moses and stop eating shellfish and you know, abstain from work on the Sabbath. So I'll stop there. We have about six more minutes. Rhoda. Everything's negative. I just wish they had said a few positives. <laughs> <laughs> well, <Instead> of abstaining. <laughs> I, I understand that. Um, I understand that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, did anyone else read this as negative? Is that how you encountered the letter? It, you know, you can, it, it, I guess it all depends on the tone that you, you read it with. Well, abstain is, you know, how about adding on a few things, too, while you're at it? <laughs> yeah. 
that's like that practice works of mercy and love and you know things like that it's the difference in between what you just said the first two great commandments and the the ten commandments almost all thou shalt not yeah they're all negative except yeah. for keeping only the Sabbath, i guess they didn't put in there only in moderation only in moderation yeah <laughs> there you go yeah it's a hard no to these things. Well, I, and so Rhoda, I, I do get your point. I, I think though, it's it's an important um, it's an important w reminder that the church had to deal with just very practical things, and they had to make these hard decisions at times. Diane, do you have your hand up? No. Okay, that was from earlier. Yeah. Bunny had her hand up. Bunny did. Bunny, Bunny, you're up. I don't remember who said it. It might have been Billy Graham, but somebody said, love God and do as you please. <laughs> if you truly love God. Augustine is what I heard. I believe that was Augustine of Hippo. Although, yeah, I'm pretty well, sure it was Augustine. Ago. Okay. But Billy Graham probably quoted him. Oh, of course. John, I have a question about your podcast do you want me to save it uh you know i don't does it tie in at all to our conversation well it, it's quick great I, mean, I think i don't know i just go to michael first i was just gonna when we were in virginia we were going to have a faith alive and part of the preparation was to have a priest from a church come tell us what it was like at his church to do this and part of his sermon, he said, he said that he didn't drink because he had too many parishioners who were alcoholics and he didn't want to be a stumbling block. Well, it caused a furor in the congregation because they heard it, well, we're not supposed to drink and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and we said, no, that isn't what he said. But <laughs> Well, you know, Michael, I think that's a, a good lesson in and of itself that, um, you know, the, so the way these Gentiles interpreted this word was overwhelmingly positive. They thought it was great. They're like, Oh, three things we can do it. Right. And so they didn't experience this as some like oppressive thing they were being told to do. But, um, there is what we say. There are the words that we speak. And there is the interpretation of the story we tell ourselves about those. And, um, it, you know, um, and that's just its own important lesson in life that, you know, whenever someone, we've all had that experience of, well, you said this. And we're like, no, I didn't say that. It's what you heard, but I, did, I didn't say that. And so that's, that's an important observation. Um, Jackie, you can ask your question. Um, I always thought that the 40 years in the wilderness had to do before the, the Hebrews got to the promised land. But if I understood your podcast correctly um, last week, you said after the report of the spies that were sent into Canaan back when only two 
were optimistic that people had to spend 40 years on the border of the promised land before they could go in. And so I'm confused. Are we talking about 80 years? Or different 40? Just 40. Here's happened. Yeah, just 40. If I read it correctly, there is um, that. Well, so if one thing to know about the book of Numbers uh, is that they don't really do chronological time well. Uh, and a lot of the prophets don't either. So like our whole thing of like Tuesday is before Thursday and the year 1908 is before the year 1922, like the way that we Westerners think of time. Um, the Bible and the Hebrews in particular don't always like get on board with that. And it can be frustrating and hard, especially in some of the prophetic writings to map out the chronology of how things happen. Uh, I don't want to mislead you. I haven't studied the book of Numbers in depth before putting that podcast together, but going off memory, and I'm sorry if I misspoke, what I think happened was they were on the cusp of the promised land. They sent out the spies. Only Joshua and Caleb gave a good report, uh, and that uh, there were 40 years after. that. that There weren't 40 years before that, but 40 years. No, I think I might have misspoke. But now I'm confused. I need to go reread the book of Numbers. So I don't know what side of the 40 years was. Now I'm doubting myself. And so uh, if I misspoke, I'm sorry. I need to go. Oh, because I'm confused. What's that? When you figure it out, let me know because I'm confused. I think you asked the question. You need to go read the book of Numbers after this and you need to let me know the answer. <laughs> I'm having a bad day anyway. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Bunny's gone. She got the Old Testament award um, last class. I could have asked her. Right. All right, team. It's about the Council of Jerusalem before we, we end today. All right. Well, thank you all for being here, and um, y'all stay healthy and uh, stay hopeful and. Stay connected, and I'll see y'all soon, okay? Have a great day. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Thanks, John.